Chapter 20, Hollywood Royalty, Virgil Junior High was the school where all the Latinos went. Well, all the Latinos plus a few surfer boys. It was the school closest to the house, so the district said I was supposed to go there. The school officials at Virgil moved me up a level because I'd been attending schools on the East Coast, which were much better than their schools. From my first day there, there was a huge communication problem. It wasn't that I couldn't speak Spanish. It was that I couldn't speak Spanglish. It was this Mexican-American slang that everybody in the neighborhood was speaking. I had the name Garcia and an East Coast accent. Nobody knew what to make of me. The Mexican students and I never interacted, except to fight. I ended up making friends with the small group of white surfer boys whose homes landed them in the Virgil School District. They were a group of tan bleach blondes named Elliot Prather, Bill Hart, Peter Baines Henchley III, Mike Vidro, and Daryl Bennett, they were into all that 70s stuff. Peace, love and surfing. All things right up my alley after living in a place where I was only allowed to greet by saying, peace. Because this school was in the middle of the city, there were no fields to play soccer, tennis, football or track. Everything was on asphalt. It was desolate compared to all the green I'd been surrounded by back east, I spent six months at Virgil, sticking to my small group of friends. We spent the summer at the beach, and surfing. We would wake up before dawn and go down to Santa Monica Pier for coffee and donuts at Aunt Clara's Cafe. Owned by Daryl's aunt. Then we would go to this big slide at the end of the pier and wax it for the owner. We gladly waxed it because it just meant getting a free ride with sheets of wax paper under us, by 6.30 we'd eaten breakfast, waxed the slide, and were ready to go surfing. We'd be in the water chasing waves till the sun went down. At sunset we were up on the pier, fishing. It was an incredible summer. Then I got some bad news. The next year we were all attending different high schools. My neighborhood had been assigned to Belmont, a school with a terrible reputation, even worse than Virgil. My friends were going to Hollywood High or Marshall. Because we didn't live in the district, I couldn't go to either of those schools, but I could go to Fairfax. My friend said I should go to Fairfax because that's where all the Jewish families sent their children. Enrolling at Fairfax would change the direction of my life. It was going to put me in the company of Hollywood royalty. And it was going to be both a blessing and a curse, in the beginning, Pop dropped me off at Fairfax every morning. At the end of the day he would sometimes pick me up, or I would walk to a friend's house. One family who shared my route to and from school was the Jackson family, and I mean the Jackson family. Jermaine attended Fairfax, and whenever they saw me walking, they would stop the van and pick me up. Riding with them didn't register as anything special at the time, but now to see how much fame they had it was really unique. They just seemed like a nice family to me. Fairfax had more sports than Virgil, but they also had an open shower system. I refused to take my clothes off in front of other people, so that kept me out of sports there too. Things really changed at Fairfax when I met Wendy Shaw. She was a leggy blonde, who had been dating Michael Gentry. He was really mean to her, and one day I saw my chance to win her over, why do you let him treat you like that? I asked. If I was dating you, I wouldn't treat you like a number. 
That's something people just say, she said, it's true. I like you, Tommy. You are nothing like Michael. I knew then that I had her. I worked my way in with humor, making sure I was never too serious. It didn't take long for me to split the two of them up, and soon enough, Wendy wanted me to come meet her parents. Wendy introduced me to her dad, actor Richard Shaw, who was married at that time to the actress Valerie Harper. Wendy is a well-known actress too, for her performance in the 1989 film The Burbs with Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher as the bikini-wearing neighbor. And other films. Now, she is the voice of Francine Smith on the animated series American Dad. Back then, Valerie was up and coming. She was Rhoda on the Mary Tyler Moore show. When I came to visit, Valerie, who was known as a comedienne, sat me down and asked me about my life. What's your story? She asked, what? This is Hollywood. Everybody has a story, what's yours? Well, I used to live back east on a 72-acre estate with this man named Father Divine. I tried to tell her some of the stories from the movement and who Father Divine was. I had just said, his followers thought he was God. That's when she cut me off. Let me stop you there, Tommy, she said. I understand what you just told me. But I don't think people in Hollywood will believe you or understand. It's better not to tell anybody and keep that story to yourself. I felt a lump in my throat. If you want to date Wendy, you will keep that to yourself. I nodded that I understood, and swallowed it all, while I dated Wendy, I ended up in the company of current and future Hollywood royalty. It was a circle that Valerie, Richard and Wendy were a part of. I often got to visit the set of the Mary Tyler Moore show and listen to script readings. Mary was just like she had on the The Dick Van Dyke Show. She was very sweet, always welcoming me there, one weekend Richard let Wendy and I use his boat. We went down to the set of Mary Tyler Moore's show to tell Valerie we were headed out for the weekend. In between takes, as usual, I sat in one of the chairs that they used at the fake news desk and wheeled it around the studio. One of my favorite people there was Ted Knight. He used that booming voice with which he read the fake news even in real life. This day he stopped me, while I was wheeling around the set, and said, I heard you're going down to the beach this weekend. Yup, I told him. I heard you don't have a car. No, sir, I said, you kids want to use my convertible. Yeah right, sure I thought he was joking. Then he tossed his keys at me and said, have them back to me on Monday. Everybody on the set was nice like that. When I first met Cloris Leachman, I told her I was a musician. My son is a musician. What do you play? She asked, guitar, and I sing a little too. My son Brian is a drummer. You two should get together. She invited me to her house, in Latuna Canyon in LA, and I had a jam session with Brian. He was a good drummer, and we had good vibes together. Pop gave me the freedom to go wherever I wanted. Well, in one way it was freedom, but when I look back on it. We were living separate lives, Pop and Consuelo somehow secretly decided to adopt an infant girl from Mexico, and named her Ana. They told me it was an adoption, but in reality I was sent to Chula Vista, California, to my uncle and aunt's home to pick up the infant, who they later claimed was birthed by Consuelo.
There was nothing legal about the adoption. When she arrived, she took over my sister's room, and I became almost a distant memory. I came and went, barely seeing Pop or Consuelo. I focused on music, surfing, and friends. I'd made some new friends at school who played instruments and I decided to form a band. Alan Zigaitis, our rhythm guitarist, a big guy with Usher's syndrome, a condition that would gradually take away his sight and his hearing. George Melkonian, played drums and looked like an Armenian Ringo star. George brought another Armenian friend, Zari Toklatkian, to play bass, and we formed the group Ice Pack. At that time Grand Funk Railroad had this song called We're an American Band. We modified the lyrics to it. We used to sing, We're an Armenian Band. We started getting gigs at festivals or for parties for friends of friends. One of the best ice pack memories was when we played at Wendy's birthday party. Valerie's actor and actress friends from Rhoda and the Mary Tyler Moore shows were there, as well as Ron Rifkin and a new singer from New York named Bette Midler. I was just a teenager when Bette came up to me and talked about touring in New York. I played the club scene there and lots of bathhouses. She said. She listened to us play a few tunes then came forward and asked, Tommy, do you have any old rock and roll boogie sort of songs? Sure, I said and invited her up to the stage. We didn't know what to expect when we pulled up an Elvis riff for her. She sang the most incredible rendition of Blue Suede Shoes. Her voice was absolutely perfect. She moved and entertained the crowd with gestures and her own version of the hip swivel. I can't put into words how incredibly talented she was. After her performance the party went wild. I knew Bette would be famous one day. Another party scene our band got into was with this group who worked for entertainment managers and agents Rudy Altobelli and Stuart Cohen. They would have parties at their mansion in the Hollywood Hills. Hundreds of people came and went, almost every face more famous than the next, Valerie Harper, Richard Schall, Wendy, Ron Rifkin, John Savage, Olivia Hussey, Cloris Leachman, Burns and Shriver, Buffy St. Marie, Bette Midler, and a lot of others. One night at a party there, somebody mentioned the house used to be rented to Roman Polanski. I was thinking about it, when somebody pointed to the fireplace and said, that's where Sharon Tate was murdered. I remember that when I heard that I thought, what are the chances of me leaving one organized religion and ending up this close to a cult? That cult, headed by Charles Manson, was nothing like what I knew under Father Divine. Father never advocated violence. In fact, he disliked Malcolm X because he thought he was creating too much anger. He much preferred Martin Luther King. After learning it was that fateful Sharon Tate house, I got an uneasy feeling when I would go up to that house in the hills. It seems a part of me knew the cult scene was about to rear its ugly head in my life again.